Hi there. Welcome back to It Happened in Hollywood. I'm your host, senior writer, The Hollywood Reporter, Seth Abramovich. This week, we have a baseball movie. Yes, a baseball movie. I'm not a huge sports fan, but I love this film. So stick around. It's going to be a lot of fun. We'll have that and more on It Happened in Hollywood. If you spend any time on Twitter, you might notice that Susan Sarandon makes people really angry. <laughs> uh, she's very outspoken about her political, you know, opinions, and she's a very, very far left uh, progressive, so far left that she ends up criticizing Democrats a lot of the time. But I can't help it. I just love her. I've loved her in pretty much everything she's ever done. But I don't think I've ever loved her more than in this character, Annie Savoy, who is the center of one of my favorite romantic comedies called Bull Durham. Annie Savoy is a basically a baseball groupie, but she's no uh, airhead. She actually takes one player every season under her wing in this minor league team playing in Durham, North Carolina, and basically brings him under her tutelage sexual tutelage, sports tutelage. Uh, you know, she, she's their uh, sort of savior. I don't even know how to explain it. It's a really weird character that I'd never seen in any movie before. But she's beautifully poetic and well-read, and she quotes from Yeats and various poets in, in the film. And um, in this movie, it's kind of a love triangle. There's Crash Davis, who's Kevin Costner in one of his first major breakout roles, and Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins plays Nuke Lelouch, who's a kind of... Um, he is an airhead. He's a pitcher. And um, they have the most incredible dynamic, the three of them. Nuke and Crash don't exactly hate each other, but they're both vying for her her affections. But Crash is really brought in to the team to, to prep Nuke for the major leagues. Anyway, if you think of sports movies as basically rah-rah, the team wins the pennant kind of things... This is not the movie for you. This is a movie about subtle psychology and sexuality and mind games and male-female dynamics and also sporting psychology, which I'd never really thought about. But what do these people talk about when they're gathered on the mound? Are they talking about the game? Well, in this case, no. They're talking about uh, what to buy someone for their wedding gift. Excuse me. What the hell's going on out here? Well, Nick's scared because his eyelids are jammed and his old man's here. We need a live, was it a live rooster? We need a live rooster to take the curse off Jose's glove and nobody seems to know what to get Millie or Jimmy for their wedding present. Is that about right? That's right. We're yeah. dealing with a lot of shit. Okay, well, uh, candlesticks always make a nice gift and uh, maybe you can find out where she's registered, maybe a place setting or maybe a silverware pattern. Okay, let's get to it. Let's go. 
<laughs> it's really brilliantly executed, and um, it's all from the mind of Ron Shelton. Uh, Ron Shelton is a writer-director who came out of the minor leagues, and um, you can just tell in the observations, the minutiae, that this guy lived in this world. And he's just so eloquent and clever in the way he expresses it. Um, so it was a huge thrill to have the actual Ron Sheldon come and talk to me about the making of Bull Durham from 1988. So sit back, relax. This is a lot of fun. Ron Shelton, welcome to It Happened in Hollywood. Uh, I'm thrilled to, to meet you. I'm a longtime fan of your work. Thank you. Happy to be here, as they say, and hope I can help the ball club. <laughs> right, yeah. I, I hear uh, sometimes you open your uh, your interviews like that, quoting uh, your own characters. I, and I buy candlesticks for uh, wedding presents, so, you know. <laughs> Place settings. <laughs> We're, of course, quoting, you know, your classic first film, Bull Durham, uh, which I rewatched recently and uh, was just delighted to see how well it held up and just how brilliant your script was a script that was nominated for an Oscar and I believe won the WGA award uh, and deservedly so. It really probably should have won the Oscar for how brilliantly uh, erudite and funny and and it was everything a, a sports movie really hadn't been. That was my intention. <laughs> well, very successful. Um, so w what we do on the show is is kind of just go through the story of the making of, of a classic project like Bull Durham. So um, I'm sure you've told this many times, but one more time. And of course, you just recently told it in a brand new book that fans could read called The Church of Baseball, The Making of Bull Durham, Home Runs, Bad Calls, Crazy Fights, Big Swings, and a Hit. Yeah, the title's too long. That was the <laughs> I, All I had was the... Church of Baseball, and they added all that other stuff. But, um, yeah, um, I don't think I ever read a making of book, and then the opportunity came to write one, and, uh, you know, they paid me. So uh, <laughs> I, I actually enjoyed it very much. Uh, the movie was difficult to make, as you can tell from the book, but also we sort of triumphed and we slayed the dragons along the way. But you don't always – sometimes the dragons slay you. But uh, – I thought it was really about the creative process, at least through my eyes and experience. Well, walk us through it one more time, if you don't mind. So I'm fascinated by the fact that, uh, you know, you actually were a baseball player in the minor leagues. and uh, But somehow that led to a path and a very successful path to Hollywood. So if you can, just draw the dotted lines for us. How, how did you become a minor league player? And then what what brought you to Hollywood? Well, I was like a lot of kids. I wanted to play, you know, professional baseball and hopefully major league baseball. And that was my dream. And out of, after out of college, I'm from Southern California. I signed a contract with the Baltimore Orioles. And all of this is uh, in the book. And, and to some degree, I, I went from Santa Barbara, this, you know, jewel city on the ocean to Bluefield, West Virginia, in the heart of the cold country, Appalachia. Appalachian <laughs> Hills and um, worked my way through the minor leagues, Stockton, California, Florida League, the Winter Ball, Texas League, International League, Rochester, New York, where I ended up in AAA, and, uh, and then walked away during the strike of 72. That's how long ago it was. Um, and... Fifteen years later, I was writing screenplays. So uh, between then, that fifteen years, 
which in the book says cut to 15 years later. There's a whole Russian novel in there that'll never get written, how you get from one to the other. But it felt like a natural evolution. I, I love to read. I went to movies as a ball player every day. Um, I hated punching time clocks and every job I had between baseball and uh, making it as a writer and ultimately director. So I was driven and I still am. Now, you obviously, as you, you know, you are a writer. Uh, you know, that's really what I admired about it is that this is almost uh, a journalistic effort as, as, as much as anything else. And uh, so did you feel kind of an outsider among the other players? And were you ca- like observing them and taking notes or mental notes? Or what was the experience of, 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 of a writer being in the, the baseball system like? I, I felt like an outsider outsider a little bit but i i i love the guys i love the players uh and i still talk to many of them all these years later and i just love the locker room and the camaraderie and nobody loved the bus trips very much but everything else i loved about it but i wasn't always interested in the same things they were uh i would get drunk with them i'd go to the strip clubs with them all that was fine i loved it but at the end of the day you know I think I wanted to be one of the guys a little more. Jim Bouton talks about that in his great book, Ball Four, a lot. Wanting to be one of the guys and not quite being one of the guys. At the same time, on the field, I was one of the guys because I was I was a good player. I was a hard-nosed player, and I mixed it up with everybody, and, and I got along with everybody and the players. So I, I was an outsider, but I didn't take notes. I didn't think I was going to be a writer or a filmmaker. Um some of the players say I was keeping notes in the back of the bus. It wasn't true. I wasn't, I was trying to figure out how to hit a, hit a slider. That's what I was trying to do, you know, but the memories are very strong. Like men I know who've been to war, the memories are very strong and you're young. You're just out of high school or college. You're still forming. Your brain is still forming. Your experiences are new. So you tend to remember everything. My father told stories of, you know, his nine months in London during the war during World War II, and he could remember every detail. Um, And I think that's what it was like for me, the baseball years. You know, one of the things the movie does so well is is capture this alternate reality, but it's normal to all of them. <laughs> this bubble they live in, and it has its own you know customs and culture and language and and um, I think that's something that speaks to whether, whether or not you like baseball. When you watch it, you recognize when birds of a feather who come together and do their thing. And, and it's a very, I don't know, it's a very heartwarming slice of humanity. Well, thank you. And I also, you know, I, I wanted to, I mean, in a certain way, tell a story from the player's point of view, from my point of view, not the fan's point of view, because most sports movies are from the fan's point of view. And the fan thinks somebody always hits a home run in the bottom of the ninth to win the game. And it almost never, ever happens, you know? Right. Uh, I, I mean, in the history of baseball, how many Grand Slam homers have won a game in the bottom of the ninth? I, I don't know. Five, <laughs> two, three out of 20 million games. Right. Uh, and maybe once in a World Series, a single homer. So that's how movies end. That's not how life ends. Life ends with a weak ground ball to third or something. So <laughs> a foul pop-up behind first. So... I wanted to do a movie like that because that's sports. That's not only the sports I knew, that's the sports I loved. And uh, it was more interesting than the pseudo dramatic big game. 
And in Bull Durham, there's not even a big game. <laughs> there's no game. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, yeah. There's a, a winning streak, but then that ends quickly. <laughs> well, we don't even know. We don't even know what happened to the team because the two people we're following, Crash and Nuke, you know, Kevin, Tim, Costner and Robbins, they're not on the team anymore. <laughs> That's right. So we don't know what happened to the Durham Bulls of whatever year. So uh, that felt right to me, too. So just to go back to your career, did you did you have a nickname? Because nicknames are a big deal in this movie. Did you have a nickname? I had a nickname in AAA that some guys called me and some guys didn't. Uh, I was called the Bounty Hunter, which doesn't slip from the tongue very well. So they would, <laughs> they would shorten it to Bounty. And that came from the story when we were waiting for baggage to come down the carousel in AAA. And my suitcase came down. I had my grandfather from Texas suitcase because it was just at sentimental value. But it wasn't working anymore, so I tied a rope around it. And I also wore cowboy boots from going to Juarez when I was in the Texas League because we we play in El Paso and you cross the river at night. It was not, it didn't kill you like it does now. It was, you know, it's such a dangerous city. Um, right. And I had a cowboy belt buckle. So between my cowboy belt buckle and my cowboy boots and my suitcase with rope around it, this cynical AAA veteran from San Francisco who was Italian. He was a pitcher, Frank Britannia, pitched in the big leagues. And he was a very elegantly dressed guy. And he looked at this with disdain, me and my stuff. <laughs> he said, we got a bounty hunter on the goddamn team. And so a lot of guys picked that up. And I was bounty hunter for a couple of years. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good nickname. I'm glad I asked. Okay, so let's jump ahead. You're, you've come to Hollywood. You're a struggling screenwriter like so many others. I guess Starbucks didn't exist then, but you were typing away somewhere. And how does the, uh, the script for this film come to uh, the town's attention? Well, I had a couple of credits. I got a couple of credits, one, one on a movie called Under Fire, of which I'm very proud. Um, it was uh, about Gene Hackman and Nick Nolte, the late great Jean-Louis Trontignon. It's about journalists at the Nicaraguan Revolution. And the, it, it posed a moral dilemma because journalists are not supposed to take sides. And, and that was one revolution where Somoza was a murderous dictator. And it was uh, people rose up and overthrew him and they were mostly innocent. Now, ironically, the, the script ends suggesting that it's all going to go wrong because the Marxists dominated uh, not the revolution, but they were politically shrewd and took over. And now Nicaragua is a totalitarian state again. Um, you can't really see that at the end of the movie, but I was very proud of it. And uh, uh, it didn't do much business here. It was a big hit in Europe. That led to another movie, The, uh, the Best of Times with Robin Williams and, and Kurt Russell, which is sports related. And uh, though neither of them were hits, they had, they each had critical followings, and they had fans in the town, in the business. There were producers who liked what I was doing. And I thought I was ready to direct, having made two flops. You know, why not? Because uh, I liked being on sets. I was in the editing room. I got to work with the actors. And so I decided if I wrote a script about something I knew more about than anybody in Hollywood, in the history of Hollywood, <laughs> playing minor league baseball, professional baseball, 
at least I'd have a shot to direct it. And I also knew that I could probably write a script that would attract an actor who meant something. And both of those things worked out. Barely, as you, as you know, the book, I almost got fired. And the movie almost fell apart. And it was a miraculous that it came together at the very last second, all of which is, a, I think, an entertaining chapter in the book. But so my strategy worked. And then I thought the movie was going to be a flop. And it wasn't. So here, here we are talking 35 years later. So the the classic axiom to uh, to write about what you know proved to be the magic ticket. Probably good advice for any aspiring screenwriters out there. But you you also came with a very strong point of view, and it, like you said, it wasn't any of the uh, cliched uh, sports movie tropes of of uh, everything hinging on one you know home run in the World Series. This this, this was really more akin to. Uh, the screwball comedies of the 30s and and 40s and uh, the back and forth between two uh, very uh, verbally dexterous but feuding um, and strong-minded leads. Would you say that that's an accurate assessment? Yes. I, I you know I never thought of it as a screwball comedy, though I love the screwball comedies. I, I think there are moments of screwball comedy. You know, any good comedy is based on pain, and it's the the choice to laugh instead of cry. And, you know, this was about a guy facing the end of his career. He was at a reckoning, Crash Davis. And Annie, Annie Savoy, who was facing the end of her career of hanging out with young boys and creating this fabulous character, which she knew wouldn't last forever. So they were, they were both at a, at a critical stage of their life, but didn't really know it until they ran into each other. And then the movie is an hour and 45 minutes of how to figuring out how to get out of their own way so they could give in to each other because that would be a, a very risky thing for each of them. And that, that, I think, is why the movie still probably works. It's still funny also. And so the screwball comedy is woven in and out of, you know, I think characters with some gravitas to them. And the character of Annie also, I was struck by just how sexually liberated and independent she is. She's, she knows exactly what she's doing, and she announces it right at the beginning. I choose one player a season, and I bed them, and I also give them tips with their game. You see, there's no guilt in baseball, and it's never boring, which makes it like sex. There's never been a ball player slept with me who didn't have the best year of his career. Making love is like hitting a baseball. You just gotta relax and concentrate. Besides, I'd never sleep with a player hitting under 250. Well, unless he had a lot of RBIs, there was a great glove man up the middle. <laughs> uh, uh, that's not a character I don't think had, that had ever been committed to uh, a mainstream film before. So was she based on someone you knew, or where did Annie come from? If if I knew her, I would still be in the minor leagues, probably playing baseball. You know, no, I mean she. I, I think any character is a combination of a lot of characters, plus it's one's empathetic imagination. Um, you know, I knew women who, coming out of the '60s, were on this lifelong search. They, had, you know, I worshipped all the major religions and most of the minor ones. You know, uh, it, it, kind of journeys that women I knew were taking that men weren't bothering with. Men were going off to Vietnam often or looking for work if they survived all that. And um, so it was a affectionate remembrance of all those women, but there was no specific woman, I would say. 
Uh, also, you know, she doesn't apologize for anything. She's going to live her life her way. She'll make mistakes. Who doesn't? I don't. Crash does. We all do. But she never apologizes, you know. And a lot of women writers pointed that out after the movie came out. I mean, with, with in a positive way. And I was glad that came through because I was just trying to make sure the woman had her due. And also, I thought I was taking a chance when I was going to tell a story about a man's world from a woman's point of view that I might get completely cut off at the knees critically. But, you know, it worked. It certainly did. Yeah. And I think that was part of the secret of the success that women felt as spoken up to as the, as the men did. There was something for everyone. Um, so how did uh, Susan Sarandon, who plays Annie, um, and she really is, uh, it's through her eyes that we see a lot of this story. How did uh, you get her? Because she's so hard to imagine anyone else playing this part. Well, the, you know, there's a substantial number of pages in the book devoted to this kind of extraordinary story. There, There is something in Hollywood that I'm sure you and your listeners know about. It's called The List, L-I-S-T with a capital L in the book, and, and it's every studio or network or now streaming company or financiers list of actors or actresses who trigger financing, who are bankable. And the problem is that everybody's list is a little different. I mean, everybody's list has Dwayne Johnson and Tom Cruise on it, but uh, the list change every week, every month. So you're you're auditioning women, and they may be on the on the list today and off the list tomorrow. It's unfair to them. It's unfair to the director, the producer, the casting director. But you got to deal with this moving target. And for some reason, the studio said that Susan Sarandon was not on the list, which made no sense. And her agent kept calling, and I kept saying, "I'm sorry, I couldn't tell her she wasn't on the list because I'd be giving away a studio secret." <laughs> and then I'd, be, then I'd be in trouble. So I'm lying. You know, I'm trying to make my first movie and never lie. I'm lying right out of the gate. And uh, Welcome to Hollywood. And, yeah, welcome to Hollywood. So um, the agent, ICM, how can I forget her name? She was a great agent. Uh, she's retired now. She, she says, well, Susan's going to fly over from Italy where she was living. You know, Susan Sarandon's Italian. Sarandon was... Chris Sarandon, her first husband's name, the actor. And she had a two-year-old over there with, with her Italian director, uh, fellow. And she says, I'm flying to Hollywood to meet you at the Burbank studio in producer Tom Mount's office, and you're going to have to meet me. And I was like, I will meet, you know, yes, but what am I going to do? So she shows up just dress to kill in this tube dress. I, I talk about this red and white striped tube dress and she looks like a million bucks and she's just got off a plane, you know, a 10 hour flight. And she comes in, I have Kevin there and she's pushing me and Kevin around and verbally and physically with him and just, she just, she's off book, meaning she knows her lines already. She was Annie. She was Annie. And then she blows out of the office and we all, it's Friday. It was a Friday afternoon. We're supposed to shoot in two weeks got everything except the leading lady and there were other candidates who was down to the wire and we sat there and we poured a drink i remember kevin and me and the producers what are we going to do she's not on the list she was great and about an hour later the head of the studio called and said um 
I just I saw Sarandon a couple weeks ago. She looks great. Well, she nobody saw her two weeks ago. She was in Italy until two hours ago. <laughs> so another lie within industry standards. Those, those, are, those are okay. Those, the, the good lies are okay. So I knew what happened. I didn't know what happened, but I found out later. She went right from the audition to the studio, Orion on Avenue of the Stars, worked her way up and down the hallways till she found all the executives that matter. She looked like a million bucks, waved, pretended she had business there. Went back, got on the plane, flew to Italy, and by the time she landed, she had the part. She was put on the list. So that that was, uh, and she turned around with her kid and flew to Durham the next day. Amazing story. What I love about that story is, is just showing, first of all, how, how astute she is, how she knows how to work the system in subtle ways, and then how easily manipulated these these suits are. <laughs> well, and, and she was right to do it. And uh, look, um, a lot of women... Almost every woman who read for that part was great. Uh, but, you know, you, you have to have, you want the movie star to be comfortable with the actor. You want the producers, the casting director, the director, writer, certainly. And the studio has to, they're writing the check. They have to approve. And so there's a lot of moving parts and opinions. And I called Susan, who I'm friendly with all the cast still. And I said, here's my memory of that. I'm, I'm writing a book. Make sure I get it right. And she she said it was absolutely right, and she just added a couple of details that by the time she got the call, she was already back in Italy walking on the beach with her two-year-old, and some lady came running across the street and said, call Los Angeles, and she called, and they said, get on a plane. You got the part. So um, she just filled in some of the blanks, but I, I got all the big, the big parts. My memory was accurate. Terrific. And then uh, um, Kevin Costner, of course, uh, who plays Crash Davis, um, was not it was not as big as she was at this point. He he was rising. Well, yeah, she was big, but for some reason she was off the damn list. I don't know why. <laughs> right. It's because you have a movie that doesn't do business. We've all done that. So suddenly you're off the list after this great career. Um, you know, it made no sense. But Kevin had done the big chill, but he was cut out of it. He, right, he's, he the, guy he's the one who died. dies? Yeah. Yes, right, right. I'd seen him in Silverado. I thought he was great, but but he's like the fourth lead. And I'd seen him in this little movie, uh, Fandango, which is a little tiny indie movie. I liked him. And then some friends said he's a really good athlete. So that summer, he did uh, Untouchables. But De Niro and Sean Connery kind of were the leads. He was the other guy. And then the... The book goes into this in some detail. On the morning, I had 30 days to get the movie off the ground with Kevin, or else he's going to have to go do another movie. And on the last day, after we'd been turned down by every studio twice with Kevin Costner attached in 30 days, everybody said, We love the script. We love Kevin, but first time director, minor leagues, no big game, no home run. You know, what happened was. No Way Out opened on Friday morning. The last day we had Kevin, Orion Pictures had that movie for six months in the can. They didn't know what to do with it because he's revealed to be a Soviet spy at the end of it. And, <laughs> right. and, he, and they wanted to trim that Soviet spy part out, but he didn't. So they put it out in August, which was the graveyard of movie releases in those days. Now there's sort of no soft weekend, but... 
um, so that Bill Bernstein and Eric Pleskow, two of the partners of Orion, they read the script the night before, then they wake up Friday morning, and the New York Times has a rave review of not only the movie, but says Kevin Costner is a movie star. And guess what? They had Bull Durham's script that night, the night before. Now, the West Coast had already turned it down twice. Mike Metavoy, understandably, I'm in business with Mike still, because they were doing Eight Men Out, a baseball movie, and they were with John Sayles, and they were uh, developing The Scout with Rodney Dangerfield, which later got made with with, uh, Albert Brooks. So they got two baseball movies already. Nobody else wants one baseball movie, and we're coming in with a third baseball movie. (laughs) (laughs) But because No Way Out got this great review in the New York Times, Bill Bernstein and Eric called me and said, do we really have to make a deal with everybody by the end of the day? I said, yes. And we had a greenlit picture on Monday morning, and that was Friday to Monday. Unbelievable. So had this not happened uh, with the opening of, of No Way Out and the rave review and all that, do you think Bull Durham might not have ever been made? I don't think it ever would have been made, ever. And I would be selling you know, dishes at Sears Roebuck or something, which I did once, <laughs> or, uh, or painting houses. No, it was that narrow of a window. I, I haven't been able to get a baseball movie made since. I have a script called Our Lady of the Ballpark about a pitcher for the Yankees who ends up in the Latin leagues, and he doesn't end up in the big leagues. Uh, he stays in the Latin leagues with a girl pitching for the Culiacan tomato pickers, I think. or. No, no, I, I moved it to Columbia. Now he's with the uh, bar and kid. No, he's, I don't know, he's pitching down there somewhere. Anyway, I can't get it off the ground. You'd think I could get it off the ground. It's a, it's, it's a lower budget in today's dollars than Bull Durham. So that's how hard it is. What's that all about? Is it, uh, yeah, why, you'd think, you know, America's pastime, there's lots of opportunity for dialogue because it's, you know, a slower sport. And uh, I'm just wondering why, why, Baseball movies are not a hot property. Because there's no foreign sales, that's why. There's no foreign, zero, zero. They say, well, it's big in Latin America. No, it isn't. It's big in the Caribbean. The Caribbean market, <laughs> the Caribbean market's New Jersey, okay? J- <laughs> Japan, Japan doesn't buy them until they're a hit already in this country. So that doesn't help. Uh, Western Europe, you can't sell it in Western Europe. So you're stuck. With Colombia, yeah, Venezuela, That's they play baseball. That's a really hot economy right now. <laughs> so it's got to play It's got to play in North America, and it's really got to play in the U.S. to have a chance. So what sports, I mean, you would think you would see more soccer movies, or I don't know, what sport would play all over the world? Soccer, but they don't play here. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem. I mean, I, I want to do a car racing movie about... Uh, in the 50s, where the hot rodders from L.A. all go over and take on Ferrari and everybody, and Phil Hill and Carol Shelby and all those guys. And we couldn't get it made, and we could get the financing out of Europe. We couldn't get the American piece. And then a movie opened that Ronnie Howard made. I thought it was a really good movie, Rush, a Formula One racing movie written by Peter Morgan, who's great. He writes all the, you know, the, the Queen, all that stuff. And it didn't do any business here. It was a really good movie. So that killed my car racing movie for a while. 
soccer is the same thing. Soccer is exactly the same thing. Name one soccer movie that's done business here. All I can think of is Bend It with like Beckham. It's the only one that kind of took it, off. It, yeah, it was a it was a low budget, modest hit. Yes, you're right. And then, of course, you know, basketball-wise, I mean, you also made White Men Can't Jump, another classic. We could do a whole episode on that one. But again, you don't, you don't see that many basketball movies. I'm trying to think of, I mean, they had this year the sequel to uh, the kids' movie, the Jam movie. But um, And uh, Adam Sandler just made Hustle. But that, oh, like, that, right, yes. And he, uh, he's a scout. But, uh, yeah, I think there, there'd be more basketball movies. I have a script right over there. I've been trying to make so. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, this is the Hollywood Reporter, so <laughs> come on, people. Wait, 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 wait. Here he is. He has the scripts. It's called cookies. It's called cookies. Cookies. Cookies? Yeah, that's the term when a, when a guy in street ball, even in the NBA now, if, it's, it's been a while. If, if I steal the ball from you, I yell cookies. Like I have my hand on the cookie jar. So it's, it's kind of <laughs> a street term that that is now in the NBA. What about a sequel to White Man Can't Jump? Someone's got to want that. It's being made right now without me, without my involvement, with my what? without anything to do with me. Without your permission, it sounds without, like. Without my permission, without anything. And All right. Other, don't other, don't other, see that one. I'm not going to talk about that because I don't want to get into a litigious situation. <laughs> All right. Well, we want to keep things upbeat, so let's move on. Um, so Kevin, a natural athlete, like you said, exudes this once-in-a-generation movie star charisma. I really, you know, I, there's like maybe on one hand you can count people, and here he is at his his peak, his youthful, handsome, uh, you know, irresistible peak. So w- w- here he, he, he saunters onto set, and, and what, what, do you, what do you get out of a guy like that? What's, what's he like? Well, with Kevin, you get everything because he's a natural athlete, and as I've often said, most actors think they're athletes because they played in Little League or something. Right. Uh, and they're not. And most athletes want to be actors, and they're not, as we can see. Uh, but Kevin's real. He played high school ball. He can play a number of sports. I played basketball with him, and golf with him. and you know, He can throw a football around. So I got him at exactly the right time. Um, he's great. I will tell you this. He's great to work with. We, we work together easily. Um, there's great respect. We can openly disagree and it, it's never personal. It's all about how do we make a better movie? What's the best way to do this scene? So, you know, we've, we've had hit two home runs, I guess, and we're, we'd lo- we're looking to do another one. So, um, you know, an athlete that's in his sixties now, the lion in winter kind of thing, except the lion's still roaring. I actually have a script almost done. And he knows about it, and he'll get to look at it first. Or we'll see. We'll see what happens. Something I love about him is how much he underplays, or I, or I don't know, maybe he makes it seem too easy, but he, he never pushes, and it never seems like he's acting or trying to be charming. Well, I believe in the soul. The cock, the pussy, the small of a woman's back, the hanging curveball, high fiber, good scotch, that the novels of Susan Sontag are self-indulgent, overrated crap. I believe Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. I believe there ought to be a constitutional amendment outlawing AstroTurf and the designated hitter. I believe in the sweet spot, softcore pornography, opening your presents Christmas morning rather than Christmas Eve, and I believe in long, slow, deep, soft, wet kisses that last three days. 
I would compare him, you know, to Tom Cruise, where you feel like Cruise is always on or knows the cameras around, even though he's, you know, equally kind of iconic. Kevin lets you come to him. Do you agree with that? Or, and what's it like to direct him? Well, first of all, it's easy to direct him because he's prepared. We also rehearse, so we don't show up, you know, I believe in rehearsal. It's the athletic model. It's called practice, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Tommy Lee Jones, when I work with him, he calls it practice. Coach, let's do some practice. <laughs> Tommy Lee was an all-Ivy League football player. So uh, I think athletes expect to prepare and practice and repeat, repeat, repeat. And in many ways, they're more, much more disciplined than most actors who, you know, we have to rehearse. You would never find an athlete saying, I can't get in the batting cage. I can't go hit 500 golf balls. I can't, you know, Steph Curry shoots 100 threes every day in practice. 100. Every uh, threes, not free throws, threes. He made 100 the other day, they said. I mean, last year they made 100 in a row. And, and uh, Durant made 97 in a row, by the way. So, and he can't get an actor to run through his scene a few times. So. <laughs> and get him uh, out of his trailer. Yeah, get him out of his trailer. <laughs> no, you're supposed to want to go to the game. So, um, I, I, yeah, so Kevin's actually a joy to work with, and he's prepared, and he, he's there for other actors. You know, some stars, if they're off screen, they, they want to stand in to do it. He's always there. If there's an actor who has his first line of his career, Kevin knows about it and he wants to be there for him. So he's very generous that way. I would compare him more to, you know, the Spencer Tracy school where, as you say, he doesn't force anything. He, he, he's, he's the opposite of the high strung. I, well, he's the opposite of James Cagney. And I love James Cagney. Just like you say, Cruz is a different style. Cagney's in your face, but he's great. He's grounded. And Kevin is, you gotta, you got to move to him. So, um, But Kevin can play big. I mean, he's, there's this little righteous anger always bubbling along with Kevin that my characters sort of have. And I let it out a little bit now and then, but not much. Kevin, I mean, Crash Davis has it. You know, Roy McAvoy has it in Tin Cup. And it comes from someplace. But so uh, anyway, I obviously... I'm Kevin's number one fan. And then to round out the the love triangle, uh, how did Tim Robbins ended up? I know he, you were very uh, passionate about him and that you almost quit over another actor, that, which is a great story if you wouldn't mind telling it. Well, Tim Tim was the hardest part to cast, uh, Nuke Lelouch, because there were a lot of young actors. I needed a 20-year-old or 18, 19-year-old. He was 30, but he looked, 19 because he has that wonderful baby face and he's six foot five and i needed somebody very different physically from kevin because if you had junior kevin and senior kevin well why would annie go with the younger version of the older guy so you need somebody who couldn't compete with you know who kevin couldn't compete with who's so different um so i liked tim right away in the audition and i he came in an audition one day we had 42 people and he was one of them and um so, uh, but I, I, I didn't, I wasn't comfortable hiring him till I put him in a room with Kevin to see what the chemistry was. And it was perfect, instantly perfect because, Ke- you know, Tim's this big goof of a guy and Crash and Kevin have this sort of sl- slow fire burning underneath. And so they played great as two actors. Um, 
And I just thought, I'm done. It's sort of like finding Wesley and Woody on White Men. I knew once I got them in a room together, that's it. Hire those two guys. So it was the same with Tim and Kevin. And uh, and as I've said many times, and I say it in the book, you know, Tim's performance is underrated because he he you cannot mock or condescend to Nuke. You have to play him with a kind of innocence, which gives him a kind of dignity because he's still a man child. But by the end of the movie, which is only an hour and forty five minutes, he's he's teasing Kevin. He's calling him meat. He mistakes fear and arrogance for fear and ignorance, but but he knows what he's doing. He's getting under his skin, and then he quotes flawlessly all those cliches to the lady sportscaster he's trying to pick up. I'm just happy to be here, and I uh, hope I can help the ball club. You know, I just want to give it my best shot, and good Lord willing, things will work out. You know, you got to play him one day at a time, though. Rayan, right? That's a beautiful name. Is that Greek, that Rayan? I don't know. It's a beautiful name, though. There's a great song by Motley Crue. Do you know the Ray Ann? She's a stay Ann. No? Anyway, a good friend of mine used to say, this is a very simple game. You throw the ball, you catch the ball, you hit the ball. Sometimes you win. Sometimes you lose. Sometimes it rains. Think about that for a while. So he's a way more sophisticated guy at the end of the movie because he's actually learned his lessons from Crash and Annie. Yes, and and it's another, I mean, I call it a screwball comedy, but it's a few different movies, and it's also sort of a a teaching movie uh, or uh, being under uh, someone's tutelage and and kind of growing up. It's a a coming-of-age story for him. Yes. With these two strange parental figures, one of whom is... He's sleeping with, and <laughs> and the other hates him. <laughs> um, so it's very unique uh, dynamics, but they keep you invested till the very end of the film. How come you don't like me? You don't respect yourself, which is your problem. But you don't respect the game, and that's my problem. You got a gift. What do I got? You got a gift. When you were a baby, the gods reached down and turned your right arm into a thunderbolt. You got a Hall of Fame arm, but you're pissing it away. I ain't pissing nothing away. I got a Porsche already. I got a 911 with a quadraphonic blaupunk. Christ, you don't need a quadraphonic blaupunk. What you need is a curveball, huh? In the show, everybody can hit a fastball. Well, how would you know? You've been in the majors? Yeah, I've been in the majors. I was in the show for 21 days once. Wow. You could be one of those guys, but you don't give a fuck me. Listen, I'm sick and fucking tired of you calling me meat. You want to step outside? Yeah, I'll step outside. So Susan and Tim, uh, this was their first time working together, I assume. And of course, that produced a, you know, a very long uh, and fruitful romance. And did did you see these sparks happening on set? None. No, I, I, you know, when you're a director, you don't have time to see anything except what's in front of you and focus. Um, I had no idea that a romance was was brewing. Um, I know that, and we talk about this in the book, the studio didn't like the movie. That was the big fight. They they wanted to fire Tim. They wanted to fire me because I was defending Tim. I knew they wouldn't fire me probably because Kevin and Susan would back me. Um, but why did they want to fire all of us? Because the studio didn't think the movie was funny. They didn't think it was sexy. 
They didn't think it was romantic. Oh, by the way, and it's on everybody's list of the best sports movie, the most romantic, the sexiest, the funny, the top 100 movies funny. So everything that it's apparently going down in history for, it was rejected of at the time. And they also said nobody will believe Susan Sarandon will ever end up in bed with Tim Robbins, to which uh, all I can say is I'm I'm the godfather of their firstborn. So... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so their issue with Tim was uh, what? He was too goofy, or t- what was their? It it didn't matter. How, they also said Susan didn't look attractive. I mean, how how? <laughs> I mean, how do you even respond to stuff like that? And then, didn't they want Anthony Michael Hall to, for yes. Tim's part? Yeah, they wanted him originally, and there's a whole reason why he never read the script. And I flew to New York to meet him, and he still hadn't read it, and. I got fed up, and then, and then when they decided they didn't like Tim, there was an executive who I called the unnamed executive throughout the book. I don't want to <laughs> name it, that guy. Uh, you can name him here, though. Who, no, who is I'm, it? Not gonna, I'm not going <laughs> to. Right. Uh, a few people know who it is. And, and he was fighting for Anthony Margot all the way through. And in fact, when the movie screened at the, at the Academy, when it was done, and by this time people were loving it, at the end of the movie, I was I went down to Cape Mantellini's to get drunk, and then I came back and sat in the corner just for the final credits, and the lights came up, much applause and laughter and everything. And this executive stood up and turned around and said, nice job, but it still would have been better than Anthony Michael Hall. That, so that, <laughs> that's what you deal with, my line of work. It's ridiculous. What can I, what do you do? <laughs> Um, so, okay. So the executives were not thrilled with it, but, uh, so how, you know, how did it become the classic that it is? And not just a classic, but a, a, a box office smash. Well, there's a chapter in the book called the numbers never lie. Uh, and the last line of, of that chapter is, except sometimes they do because audiences laughed and cheered. Every screening went great. But then when they were asked to fill out the cards, the numbers were never good. And I could never, to this day, I can't figure that out. We never got over 58% where they want to be 85 to 95%. 58%. Never got over it. And I don't know why. And I still don't know why. And I called National Research Group, the fellow whose name slips my mind, NRG, because they're the group that does test screens, all movies. Every producer, director in town knows NRG. And they ask the questions, and they do the focus groups and all that. And I called the guy, and I, he said, I said, do you? He said, I, I worked on Boulder 35 years ago. He says, I says, it's all in a computer. Let me look up the numbers. So we set a time, and he had all the numbers, and we went through all the numbers at all the screenings and where the screenings were. So in the book, when I recall that, it's not my memory. It's 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 research. And um, we never got the numbers up, ever. And um, and so I didn't know what the hell to do. We were done. The movie was done. And then, and then, you know, you start, reviews start coming in. They start creeping in the week before you open. And they were through the roof. This is the movie that studio hated. Except there was a few people in the studio that loved it, I have to say, and they went to bat for it. Uh, the marketing people loved it. They really thought they had something. So they were right. A man named Charles Glenn. And so we went out there in June with all the big action movies. 
you know, all the big budget movies, and we were the other guy. We were the movie about character, about behavior that was humorous or sexy. It was a movie like no other movie like ours out there. And it found an audience right away. And on opening day, the reviews were just off the charts. I mean, they were like 99.9% rave. So at that point, we were kind of home free because also, but that was the first time in the entire process that we, that we, we weren't feel that it was a knife on our back. And, and, and then it was, I could go around to this, you know, a lot of directors do this drive around and to the theaters it's opening at and just stick your head in the back door and see how they're responding. Well, if it's a comedy or a horror movie, you can tell. They're either laughing or they're screaming. You know, if it's a drama, you can't tell, you know. Um, and it was playing great and it did really well. Now, keep in mind, in those days, I mean, 800 theaters was a big opening. Not Now it's like 3,800, uh, 800 screens. And we did five and a half million or something like that, which was like fifth place, but first place, you know, this Schwarzenegger movie did seven or eight, and this there wasn't, but the second week we, we did six million. No movie, movies mm. don't, don't go up. Right. And the third week we did five and a half. I've got all the numbers. And then we just slowly tapered a little bit down and ran all summer. So uh, you say 50 something million dollars. Yeah, but that's 120 million today. And that cost 8 million. So, um, but they also let a movie run in those days. Now they want to get, as you know, how much can we get out the first two weekends? And they just, and Orion just hung in there and hung in there and hung in there and pretty soon everybody saw it. Yeah. Unbelievable. I wonder what those low uh, audience scores were about. I, I wonder if it had something to do with just, it just being too smart. Like, I don't think people go into a baseball movie expecting to hear Walt Whitman quoted and uh, you, you were talking up to the audience and maybe they would just were, uh, you know, it wasn't what they expected. I don't know. There was no big game, you know, no home run. Uh, yeah. I think, I think it grew on people. I think, I think that, you know, first of all, we know that women, were okay. Both all all audiences seemed to like the movie. Women liked it even more, which was interesting for a sports movie. Um, it was not intended to be a young person's movie, just because the issues, people in their mid to late thirties dealing with life change. But Tim ended up bringing in young people who love Nuke. Um, so there was something for everybody, but I, yeah, I don't, I'll, I'll never figure out the, the test scores on that ever. Yeah. And then you have, of course, word of mouth always helps. You know, if someone tells you this is a movie to like, yeah. that has to encourage people to, oh, I'm allowed to laugh at this and, and this is cool. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. The, the whole herd mentality thing, which seems to run a lot of Hollywood. But you've obviously made an incredible classic. Uh, do, do you enjoy returning to it? Do you, uh, like, what, have there been re-releases that have uh, had been momentous? I know one in Washington was kind of controversial because of uh, their politics, Susan and Tim's politics, and didn't end up happening. Well, that was at the hall. That was at the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. Oh wow! And okay. then, but uh, which really upset me because Kevin and. I mean, Tim and Susan wanted to go up there to get away from politics. They told me, we're going to go up there and just have a baseball. And the kids, they have, the kids were young. And, you know, and Kevin's, Kevin's politics are different. And we all get along great. I mean, that, it's, plus baseball is all about the ritual of disagreeing and arguing and 
getting on with your life in the game anyway. That's what I always say. That's what's civilized about the game. It ritual sure. it ritualizes the, the argument, the disagreement. Um, and, you know, and also baseball, you'd be at a baseball cheering for your team and the guy next to you may be politically, you have nothing to talk about, but you're rooting for Bellinger to break out of his slump together, you know? I mean, that's what I love about baseball. <laughs> and um, Right. And then a guy named Jeff Idelson came in and took over the Hall of Fame, and he reinstated, and we had a great event up there. So we, oh, we, nice. we got to do it after all. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this was a real treat. I, again, one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, I'm not even really a big sports fan, but I consider it one of the greatest. So, uh, Ron Shelton, thank you for joining us. And uh, I hope uh, your other projects get made. You're, you're a unique talent, and it's a real honor to talk to you. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Wow. Living legend, Ron Shelton. Thank you so much. That was really enjoyable. Uh, I hope you guys liked it too. And I hope you catch Bull Durham. It's streaming on Freebie and Amazon. And next week, we have another one of my favorites, uh, a very, very dark teen comedy. You might remember it. It's called Heathers. It's inspired a TV show, now a musical, which I believe is on the Roku channel. But the original, mm, ooh la la. So good. It, along with Beetlejuice, established Winona Ryder as a major new Hollywood star, and it also introduced a very young, very charming Christian Slater to movie audiences. We have the director of that, Michael Lehman, telling us all on the next episode of It Happened in Hollywood. You can catch that one on Amazon Prime. Until then, I'll see you in Hollywood. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.